Let's take a moment and pray and ask God's blessing on what it is that we do now as we turn our attention to his word. Father, I pray this morning that as we turn our attention to the word of God, that you would open our minds to understand it. One of the things that I think we can all agree on and that this passage reflects is that as the leaders go, so go the people. And so, Father, it's critical, it's absolutely imperative that we have godly leaders, good shepherds, men of your choosing who are committed to your values, to your truth. We're committed to shepherding your people. It doesn't escape our notice that as we come to this passage of Scripture, we are in the process of looking for a pastor, looking for a shepherd, a leader. And I pray, Father, that as we study this passage of Scripture together, we would both be encouraged and excited about the future, about the man that you will bring to assume this role, to fulfill this function in our midst. But every Christian is designed to need a pastor, to be pastored, to be shepherded. And I pray, Father, that as we are shepherded in the future by this new man, this man of your choosing, that it would be both edifying to us and a blessing to him, that you would make us the kind of people that are easily shepherded. Oftentimes, Lord, pastors find that shepherding a church is like herding cats. Lord, deliver us from that. Give us submissive and compliant spirits that we might follow in a way that would be pleasing to you. And so now as we turn our attention to the word, Lord, open our minds and our hearts again to understand it and that it would be used in our hearts and our lives, Lord, by your spirit to change us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So by the early 5th century B.C., Israel had become a defeated, inconsequential people group within the Persian Empire. They weren't even a nation, weren't even a province. They were just this rump, this remnant, this group of people. Sin and rebellion against Yahweh, the God of Israel, and his law had left Israel a mere shadow of what God had intended. It was a shadow of its former self. And so when we get to this point in redemptive history, this incredibly low point at the end of the Old Testament, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, we have to ask ourselves the question, why? With the beginning that it had, with all of the hope and the promise of Israel, God's miraculous release of his people from slavery, establishing them in Canaan, establishing the Davidic kingdom, Coming to this place, this zenith of prosperity and power under King Solomon, why is it that 500 years later they're slaves again? What happened? What happened? Ezekiel, writing a little before this, in Ezekiel chapter 22, he's writing from exile in Babylon. He says this. Let me just read this section to you. It's a longer section. And he's explaining why Israel has reached this new low. And he says this, Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between holy and common. 
Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have disregarded my Sabbaths, so that I am profaned among them. Her princes in her midst are like wolves, tearing her prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to gain dismissed gain. And her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, thus says the Lord God, when the Lord God has not spoken, the people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and the needy and have exhorted, extorted from the sojourner without justice. And I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before the land, before me in the land, that I should not destroy it, but I had found none, not one, not one leader. Therefore, I've poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord God. So that is, that is Ezekiel speaking about the situation. Before Zerubbabel returns, before Ezra returns, before Malachi writes... It's axiomatic in the church, in the kingdom of God. This is just a truth, and it's just axiomatic in any context in the kingdom of God, and it's this, that as the leaders go, so go the people. Leadership is absolutely critical to the success of the kingdom of God. And so what happens in Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, is that Malachi challenges the priests who were slipping back into old patterns. He was slipping back into the kind of behavior that was seen before the Babylonian conquest. And Malachi knew that a reformation of leadership was absolutely critical for the people of God in this generation. And what is true in the Old Testament is true in the New Testament. We don't have prophets and priests the way that they were um, live the, the way that they served in the Old Testament, but we have pastors, shepherds, and teachers who, according to Ephesians chapter 4, are given to the church as gifts by God to teach, to lead, to shepherd, to nurture a flock, to represent as an under-shepherd the great shepherd of the sheep. And so as we look for a new pastor... As your elders and that group of people who are working with them pray and seek, we need to think about what kind of man are we looking for? What kind of man makes a good pastor? Is he the, the life of the party? Just sort of the ultimate people person? Is he a bookish intellectual who is able to talk, able to read in all of the original languages, Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic is nice too, if you can get one like that. Or he is profoundly gifted in leadership, strategist, an excellent communicator, makes you laugh, makes you cry, you can't wait to hear his sermons because they're so fun to listen to. Who, what kind of man does God think that we need as a congregation? And I think this passage goes a long way to answering that question. There's five things that become pretty clear in this passage. 
from both positive and negatives that I want to point out to you. Five qualities that we should be looking for and expect in our new pastor. Qualities that we need to hold him accountable for. Qualities that I asked my congregation when I was a pastor to hold me accountable for, to help me as I strove to fulfill the office that God had given me for those 32 years in Georgetown. And the first one is this, a commitment to honor the Lord. A commitment to honor the Lord. Read with me verses 1 and 2 again. And now, O priests, this commandment is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessing. Indeed, I've already cursed them because they do not lay it to heart. The priests, all of them, came from the tribe of Levi. Now, back in the good old days and then also in the days before Jesus, there were generally about 24,000 Levites in Israel. They were divided into 24 sections of about 1,000 each, and they would serve on rotation in Jerusalem for about two weeks every year. At any given time, you needed 50, minimum of 50 priests in the temple serving to get the job done. It was a heavy job. You were killing animals. You were getting rid of the guts and the offal. You were offering sacrifices. You were cleaning. You were doing all kinds of stuff. It was a busy, heavy job. That's why a priest would retire at 50. Those were the good old days when priests got to retire young. But their fundamental job, their fundamental role was to give honor to the name of God, to bring him glory and honor and praise in what they did. But in Malachi's day, this group had shrunk. It was a smaller group, obviously. And it was becoming compromised and it was becoming corrupt. Instead of honoring the name of God, they were dishonoring the name of God. They were allowing people to bring defiled sacrifices. They were allowing people to bring the leftovers of their flock, the lame, the blind, something that wouldn't be good in the breeding stock. Just give that garbage to the Lord. It's okay. He'll not mind. Give him second best. And God says to these priests, if you don't take to heart my command to give honor to my name, then I'll do three things. I'll do three things. First, I will curse your blessing. The priests were called to bless the people. God says your blessing, your ministry in their life will turn into a curse. Your attempt to bless them will in fact debilitate them, hurt them, curse them. Secondly, I will rebuke your offspring. The only people who could become priests were the sons of priests, sons of Levi, the Levitical priesthood. And what what God is saying is that unless you give honor to my name, unless you put me first, unless the worship of Yahweh is the most important thing in your life, I will curse your kids. And there's a lesson there for parents, just as an aside. The most important thing that if you want your kid to grow up to love Jesus, the most important thing he can see in your life as a mom or dad is that you are deeply, passionately in love with Jesus and living your life for his honor and his glory. Not for pleasure, not for your business, not to travel, not for money. 
If you say that, that, that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is God, and I just want to serve him, but your kids see you doing exactly the opposite, you know what you are? You're a hypocrite. Your kids will see through that as they saw through it in the five centuries before Jesus was born. So be warned. Take care. Don't say you love Jesus and desire to, desire to see him be glorified to your kids if you're not willing to live the life. Thirdly, I'll rub your faces in excrement, essentially, and drag you away. Before, before the animals were sacrificed, they were gutted. And if any of you here have hunted as I have, it's not a pleasant job to clean a deer. There's all kinds, lots and lots of offal and excrement. And what God says to these men is, I will smear that on your faces, and like that garbage is dragged away, I'll drag you away. Because if you're not willing to put me first in your ministry, I don't want you in the ministry. And I can think of lots and lots of instances over the history of the church where men have been dragged away in disgrace and shame, covered in disgrace and shame because of their unwillingness to put the glory of God first. So what God is saying to these priests is, your motivation is important. Why you do what you do is critical. And if you don't do it for the glory of God, if that is not your first passion, then I'll remove you from ministry. The goal of any godly pastor, any godly shepherd in a church must be first to lift up the name of Jesus. That must be the reason. It's for the glory of Christ above all else, above all things. It should be to see Jesus honored, to see more people worshiping him and giving him their best. A man who's in the pulpit and doesn't call for you to do the same is failing in his office. You should evaluate a pastor this way. Does his ministry lead me to sacrifice more? Does his ministry lead me to give more? Does his ministry lead me to do more for the glory and the honor of Jesus? Or does he accept my second best? Does he accept my leftovers? When I say to him, you know what, I'm really tired, I got a lot going on in my life, does he say, okay, no problem. Don't worry about God's kingdom. Don't worry about the church. Don't worry about the things that God has said are most important. You go live your life because God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life anyway. Or does he say, no, that's not good enough. God doesn't want our second bests. He sets the bar high. And he expects us to strive for it as he strives for it himself. A godly leader will never accept your leftovers. Your time, your resources, your gifts, your talents. And if he does, challenge him. If I do, challenge me. I think the reason for that is the simple, the simple words that Jesus said one day. that To remember that where your treasure is, there your heart will be. What do we treasure? We treasure our money. We treasure our time. We treasure, we treasure those things. And if we're withholding them from the church, our heart will not attend. Our heart follows where our treasure is invested. And if your pastor doesn't call you to invest in the church, to sacrificially serve and give and be involved in, 
And it's sometimes, you know what, it's easy to give money. Lots of us can just write the check and have done with it. It's much more difficult to use the time and the talents and the gifts and the abilities that God has given you to serve in ways that the church needs to be served. Because where your treasure is, that which you most value, your heart will follow along. It's like a leash. Your investments are tethered to your heart. And where you invest, your heart follows. Now, Pastor Paul's not here this morning, so I'm not, you know, being obsequious and saying things nice about him just because he's a nice guy. But when I first met him, we were both serving in Hope Niagara, and they were in a similar situation without a pastor and, and going through some difficult times. And I, and I didn't really know Paul. I had met him a couple of times when we went through the process of, of bringing my church into the GCC. But one of the things I noticed about him in those Zoom calls that we were doing uh, because, of the, because of COVID was um, we pray together. And every time we prayed, he would pray this. And you made me know what I'm going to say. Not to us, O oh Lord. Not to us. But to your name bring glory. And the first time he prayed it, I thought, well, that's, that's kind of neat. And then the next meeting is like, it's again. Not to us, O oh Lord, it was passionate. Not to us, not to us, not to us, but to your name bring glory. And every time we met for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, and even now when we pray in, the, in this guest reception, <laughs> mental block with that word, every time it's the same thing. Psalm 115.1, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name give the glory. That's what you want in a pastor. First and foremost, first question. It's not about, can you parse this Greek verb? Can, can you give me a, an understanding of your biblical theology? That, those aren't the questions you should ask. How are you as a people person? What marks did you get in seminary? If anybody had asked me that, I'd never have gotten a job. <laughs> the first question you ask, are you about the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ? Does that, is that above and beyond anything else? Does that take precedence in your heart? What is your motivation? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Is it to see Jesus worshipped? People can learn Greek. People can learn history. People can understand biblical theology. You can read books. But God puts that in a man's heart. And if that's not there, you should not be in the pulpit. You should not take the mantle, the moniker of pastor. You don't deserve it. Too many of us who are in the ministry, unfortunately, use the ministry to our own glory. And that never ends well. Too many of us in this position use the role to burnish our self-esteem, to bolster our sense of worth. We define ourselves by what we do rather than by who owns us and whose slave we are. So first and foremost, we must ensure that our pastor is not a glory thief, that he is committed to the glory and the honor of Jesus. Secondly, committed to preach the word. Read verses five and the first half of verse six with me. My covenant with him was, now he's talking about Levi. 
the, the priests of old. He says, my covenant with him was one of life and peace. Now there's the blessing that came as a consequence of faithful leadership, life and peace. And I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear and he feared me and he stood in awe of my name. And let's, let's just look at what, what God says about these priests of old. True instruction was in his mouth. No wrong was found in his lips. And he walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from iniquity. So the covenant that, caused, that, that brings blessing to the people of God is mediated through the priests of God. And that blessing is life and peace. And faithful Levitical priests shared that, poured that in, mediated that into the life of Israel. Then verse 6, Malachi says that, says certain things. True instruction was found in his mouth. No wrong was found in his lips. The instruction there literally means law. What Malachi is saying is that these faithful priests spoke the law of God accurately. They didn't corrupt it. They didn't distort it. They didn't dilute it. They didn't water it down. From the very beginning of time, God has raised up godly men to speak for him priests and prophets, pastors, teachers, who understand the law of God and are unashamed in the presentation of the law of God. And there are two ways in which we do this in the New Testament. The office of the, office of the prophet is, is no longer. We don't need a prophet. We have God's word, complete final word, final ultimate revel, revelation. So what the job of a prophet today, what the job of a preacher today is who speaks for God is to speak God's word. I'm going to tell you, you should not care one iota about my opinions. We can ask, we can talk about it, we can share opinions, but they're ultimately irrelevant as far as my office is concerned. What is ultimately relevant, what really only matters is do I preach what God says? Because it's God's opinion, God's truth, that ultimately counts. So a faithful pastor is going to proclaim the whole counsel of God by choosing to place himself under the word of God rather than to communicate sort of like his hobby horse ideas. And I often did this with both my own congregation back home. My job is to be under the word of God, to be submissive to it, it's not to stand above it, and it's not to use it. It's not to, on a Saturday night between the end of Coach's Corner and the beginning of the second period, think, oh, what will I talk about tomorrow? Oh, I know, I'll talk about love. So let's go to 1 Corinthians and say something about love. And let's go to John and say something about love. That's not preaching. That's not faith, and that's a dereliction of duty. The job is to start at the beginning of Genesis, and if God blesses you long enough, to end at the end of Revelation. To, to, start, to, to go to Malachi, to go to Philippians, to go to Galatians and start at the beginning and just simply say what God says. Just say what God says. And it's powerful. Last week we were at a conference, the GCC, I told you about that, the GCC Pastors and Wives and Interlopers Conference. Cindy and me being the interlopers. I listened to three guys preach and it was awesome. You know what they did? They told me what the Bible said. They just preached the word. Told us what God said. 
And God took that word and applied it to my heart, ministered to me. Years ago, I had a friend, one of our elders, actually, he and his wife took two years to go to China. He's an, he's an engineer and he's working for a company, but he wanted to go and they asked him to go move to China and he saw it as an opportunity to do missions work. And so he went and he sent me this email. This is a number of years now, but I, I just, I kept it. And he said this, his name was Alain, Alain Lamoth. He says, I just wanted to send you a little note to say that we're still listening to your sermons. I never truly appreciated the value of going through an entire book instead of jumping to and fro and listen and making the text fit the message. After having, after having been fed on solid food for so long, it's hard to go back to milk only. And sadly, that's what, he couldn't find a church in China where the word was being preached faithfully. It's heartbreaking. But secondly, we are to preach the truth. Not just preach the whole counsel of God, but to preach the truth. Remember when I was uh, a young pastor, I decided I was going through the pastoral epistles and I got to chapter five, and I was, I was not being paid well, frankly. One of the, I, never, I never asked what the salary was, note to self. 32 years later, I, I, I'll, if somebody asks me again, I'll do better. But they never asked me what the salary was. But I, I'm, so I'm working and I'm, I'm involved in ministry. And I come to this passage in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, where Paul says, honor, honor those who lead among you, essentially. Especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And I, and I realized that the word honor there in that passage of scripture really meant honorarium. Double honorarium. And I'm looking at it, I'm studying the passage of scripture, and I'm saying to myself, I think what... Paul is saying here is that people who work hard at preaching and teaching should get double pay. Hmm. I can't say that. I can't say that. That's so mercenary. It's so self-serving. It's so wrong. That would be wrong for me to preach that. I can't say that. But I've got to. And so I did. I didn't get erased. But I'll tell you, that was a hard, that was a hard Sunday because I didn't want to say it. But you see, the beauty of preaching through the scriptures verse by verse is it forces you to tell the truth, to preach the truth. A pastor, a godly pastor refuses to lie by either softening the message, redacting the part that we feel culturally inappropriate, making God's demands more palatable or accepting, shaping the message to fit cultural norms, or doing anything to lose the clear message of God's truth. And if you're going to judge your pastor, and you should, if you're going to evaluate, you should evaluate on the basis of this. Does he faithfully preach the scriptures? I want you to quickly look with me at 1 Timothy because we do have a little bit extra time this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Last words of Paul to his son in the faith, Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God, Timothy, and of Jesus Christ, who is the, to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. 
For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. A godly pastor never allows himself to be accumulated. He never allows himself to be tamed. Never allows himself to be muzzled. And the consequence of that is why Paul had that last verse there. It's not easy. It's going to be challenging. Listen, listen to what he says again. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Why, why is that in there? When you tell people what the word says, oftentimes they're going to shoot the messenger. And I would say to people, don't shoot me. I'm only the messenger. If you've got a problem, talk to God about it. It's, I'm just telling you what God says. Don't yell at me. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Thirdly, a dynamic walk with God. A dynamic walk with God. Verse 6, the last half of it says this. He walked with me in peace. You see that? And uprightness. And turned many from iniquity. That's what a faithful priest did. That's what a faithful priest did. He walked with me in uprightness. In peace and turn many from iniquity. Three marks of the life of a godly pastor. Real quick. First, he is a peacemaker. He's, a, he's relationally careful. He lives as much as it depends on him at peace with all people. The ministry is, is, is fraught with the potential of conflict. A godly, effective leader doesn't shy away from conflict but enters conflict looking to be a peacemaker. Absolutely, absolutely critical. James 3, verse 18. We preached through James a while ago. I love this verse. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Absolutely critical. Secondly, the quality is uprightness. And the literal translation of that word there is level ground. And I think what, the, what God is saying through the prophet is that there is a consistency in how he lives his life. It's not erratic, not fitful, not inconsistent. Doesn't mean that he doesn't grow, he's not continuing to change and strive to be a better man, a better father, better husband, better friend. He is. But his walk is not fickle. It's not changeable. It's not erratic. You can expect him to be the same man. I think it's very, very important. And third, he turns others from iniquity. He strives after a life of holiness and Christ-likeness, and he calls others to follow him. And one of the ways that's, that's so critical is that you are transparent enough about your own struggles and the own challenges in your life that you can say, look, yes, I struggled with that, but God has given me freedom. And I am wrestling with this issue, but I am growing. A humility to be transparent about your struggle with sin. It's absolutely critical for the guy in the pulpit. Absolutely critical. He should turn others from iniquity. 
Not by standing six feet above contradiction and pointing fingers and saying, you bunch of rotten sinners, you got to quit doing that, but simply by saying, God is good, and he's, he's sanctifying me and he's sanctifying you. We all struggle with sin. We're all broken. We're all wounded people. We, we wrestle with different things, but we're all in a journey. It's two steps forward and one back, but God is good. And I want, you to, I want to live my life before you in such a transparent way that you can see that goodness. You can see the grace of God in my life. Yeah, I used to, be, I used to have a bad temper, and I struggled with pornography, pornography and, and I was this, this, you know, whatever the issue is. And he stands there and he says, this is me. But look what God has done. He's turned me from iniquity. He can turn you too. I think it's absolutely critical that that transparency and vulnerability is seen in the pulpit. Verse 7, a courage rooted in strong convictions. Courage rooted in strong convictions. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. He guards knowledge. Men and women should seek instruction from him, and he courageously speaks for God. He is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. To guard knowledge means to preserve it. If there, if there was ever a day when truth was under attack, the whole idea of truth being possible is under attack. It's today. And a godly pastor is someone who is not, any kind, not even one one billionth postmodern. You've you, you got to know that truth is truth. He's not, he's not a relativist in any way, shape, or form. He knows that truth is truth. And his desire is to preserve it. And he guards it from corruption and distortion. One of the most, I, I come from a denomination that we lost in some respects the truth. Slowly, incrementally, insidiously at times, we lost the truth. That's why we left and joined the GCC. And I would hear people say phrases like, we're doing theology. And the first time I heard it, I thought, what do you mean you're doing theology? And what they were saying is, we're, we're coming up with new stuff. They would never say it that way. But we're, we're being novel. We're, we're digging into the scriptures and finding stuff that nobody's seen before. You mean like Calvin didn't get it? Augustine didn't see it? But you figured it out, have you? Doing theology. What the church needs are men who know the truth. Know theology. The theology that the Apostle Paul preached. And just teach it. Don't do theology. Study theology. Preach theology, but don't try to come up with something new and novel and fresh and innovative. That's dangerous. And that's what happened to the Alliance in a lot of ways. But one of the, like I used to say to people 10 years ago when I was arguing with people about this, lovingly, because that's the way pastors are supposed to be, right? I'd say like, how is it possible in the early part of the 21st century, we have suddenly discovered this theology about the role of women and men. And for 2,000 years, 
some of the most brilliant people in the history of the church just missed it. How did, how did we stumble upon it? Innovative, creative, novel, fresh, new theology should always be taken with a bucket full of salt. And then he says he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. He's a messenger of the Lord of hosts. He speaks for God. He speaks for God. Whoever speaks, do so with the understanding that he is speaking the very oracles of God. That's what Peter says. When you heard the scripture read this morning, you were hearing the voice of God. To the extent that what I say reflects the truth of God's word, you're hearing God's voice. And that is the role of a godly pastor. And it can be costly and it can be lonely. And that's why when he comes, love on him and encourage him. Build him up. Tell him you love him. Tell him you value what he does. Tell him you're in his corner. Stand with him. Bless him and his family. Then lastly, a sense of the gravity of his office. Look at verse 8. In contrast to the Levitical priests, he says, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all of the people inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. The priests in Malachi's day had turned aside from the right way. Their instruction was faulty. They were unfaithful to the covenant. They had shown partiality in their teaching. A lot of itching ears out there want to hear certain things, so I'll say it. Don't want a lot of conflict. I want to be an attractional church. I want people to come where they hear what they want to hear, so I will be partial. I won't be impartial. And what the prophet says is that many have been caused to stumble. The word stumble there literally means become weak or feeble or sick. There was no solid food, no nourishment, no sustenance. And why did it become this way? Well, once again, even after the captivity, even after the conquest of Babylon, even after the prophetic words of people like Ezekiel, Ezekiel that we read at the very beginning, even after all of that, they were still unfaithful, doing what they thought was best. They had forgotten the enormous responsibility that God had placed upon their shoulders pastor who forgets the enormous responsibility that he has to God when he realizes that he will incur a stricter judgment and he forgets that is in a very, very dangerous place. And as a consequence, they had become inept, incompetent, and corrupt and the people were stumbling. And so a godly pastor must feel the weight of his office. There should appropriately be on a Saturday night a, a sense of heaviness, a 
a sense of gravity about what he has to do tomorrow morning. A sense of the weightiness of the responsibility that he has to deliver God's truth to God's people. It's absolutely important. It's absolutely critical. The pastor's responsibility is to care for the well-being of the church. They must never take that lightly. A malnourished church is a weak church. And so therefore, the primary vocation of a pastor, a godly pastor, is to prepare the meals. So really, when I was at the end of my ministry in Georgetown, I had, I had two, I was like a waiter, two, two primary responsibilities. I had to get people their food, and I had to make sure it got there hot. That was my role. And I, I grew into that role because I became increasingly aware of two things. The significance and the, the impact of preaching, the necessity of godly preaching, word-based preaching. And secondly, how long it takes to prepare an effective message. You can't do it between, I used to tell people, between the end of Coach's Corner, I watched Don Cherry, and the beginning of the second period, I'd write my sermon, they'd all laugh. It's kind of a running joke in the church. It takes a long time to write a good sermon. Remember when Peter, the, just before Jesus went to heaven, Peter met with Jesus and he had denied Jesus three times. So three times Jesus said, do you love me, Peter? Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. You know what Jesus' response was in each of those three instances? One time he said, tend my lambs. The other time he said, twice. Feed my sheep. A pastor needs not an office, but a study. He needs a place where he can sequester himself, be alone with God, be alone with the words, the word, and study the word and prepare a meal for you on a Sunday morning because it will bless your heart. It will change your life. Godly preaching is one of the most powerful means of grace in the life of a Christian. Preaching changes us. It's not a lecture. It's not teaching. Preaching is something unique to itself. Where a man stands between heaven and earth, with one foot in heaven and one foot on earth, and speaks for God, and the Spirit of God takes that message and applies it to your heart, and it changes us. It changes us. So what do you do? How do you love your pastor while you give him lots of time? Give him lots of time to focus on the word. It's an immensely weighty responsibility. When he feels the gravity of it, he will fight for that time because he knows that on a Sunday morning he needs to feed you. I want to leave you with a bit of encouragement this morning. Again, from the Old Testament, Jeremiah, who wrote earlier, but not too far before, Malachi, and he says this, speaking about what God is going to do. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I'll bring them back to their fold. And they will be fruitful and multiply. And I'll set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, 
nor be dismayed. Neither shall there be any missing, declares the Lord. Behold, Jeremiah says, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he, the Messiah, he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. God promised, God promised that through the ministry of the root of David, the righteous branch, he would establish a new kingdom. And in that kingdom, his people would dwell securely because he would raise up faithful shepherds. I want you to know this. And I don't know the dealings. I'm not part of this committee. I I really know very little about what's going on. But God is going to bring a faithful shepherd to you who will love you and teach you and lead you and guide you. But if he isn't the greatest people person and if he isn't the greatest intellect and he isn't the greatest, if he's not the life of the party and he doesn't know three ancient Semitic languages, don't worry about it. Ask Ask this question. Is his passion to see Jesus glorified in worship? Is that that what really causes him to get out of bed in the morning? Does he preach the word? Does he live and walk a godly life? Does he look like Jesus when I see him? And is the Lord at work in his life, in his journey? Is he bold to stand on the truth or is he compromising? going along to get along? And does he understand the significance and the gravity of what God has called him to do? If those things are in the heart of this next guy, this congregation will be incredibly blessed. And I believe that God is going to raise up such a man for this congregation. Because he is the great shepherd of the sheep. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage of scripture and how even though it was written 2,500 years ago and is so removed from us, yet it is so relevant. It's so relevant to the situation, to these people, to us. So Father, I pray you let these thoughts sink deeply into our lives and that you would continue to direct the elders and those that work with them to lead them to the man of your choosing for this next season of ministry here at Living Hope Markham. Pray these things in Jesus' name.